This is MSU Today. Here's Russ White. After several years of research and analysis, Michigan State University has released an institution-wide strategic plan to address sexual assault, sexual harassment, relationship violence, and stalking issues that collectively will help foster a safer campus community. The Relationship Violence and Sexual Misconduct Strategic Plan builds on the work of the RVSM Expert Advisory Work Group, which has been a major driver of RVSM efforts on campus and was tasked with creating a values-driven operational plan with recommended initiatives, timelines, and metrics. The work group, co-chaired by Dr. Rebecca Campbell, Professor of Psychology, and Lieutenant Andrea Munford, coordinator of the Center for Trauma-Informed Investigative Excellence at the MSU Police Department, was formed in 2018 to make immediate recommendations to transform MSU's institutional response to RVSM and oversee the implementation of those changes in the wake of the Larry Nassar crisis. Members of the work group were appointed by the president based on their expertise in RVSM services, prevention, policy, and or research. Um, what we've learned through conversations through the Nassar case, through other cases, and conversations with survivors, um, with other community stakeholders, is that people didn't report what was going on because we as a university didn't give them a safe place to report. There was a lot of um, judgment in reporting. There was a lot of inaction. And as that became more known, there was a pattern there. And so people stopped reporting because they didn't feel like it was safe to do so. That was Lieutenant Munford. Here's Dr. Campbell. We also heard people didn't know where to go. They didn't know what services we had. They didn't know how to access them. We've had longstanding victim service programs, both in sexual assault and in relationship and relationship violence and stalking for decades, really actually very strong programs, good trauma-informed services, and people didn't know that they were there. So we knew that we needed to be doing more to create clear, accessible pathways to the services that we have and to strengthen those services, that there was still more we needed to do in those services. So both in terms of improving options for reporting and in terms of getting support in healthcare, we, we needed to start over and we needed to really think through how to make accessible pathways for victims. So then how did you and your team go about developing the plan? We did a lot of listening. We did a lot of listening. We have been in campus engagement sessions since spring of 2018. We've had an online portal form where people could send in their suggestions, their comments, their concerns, their anger, their fears. We read all of those. We did a crosswalk between our current programming and national recommended best practices to identify all of the gaps. And then we spent months looking at model programs, looking at what we had, um, applying for grants. We have a number of initiatives in this plan that are funded in collaboration with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, the Division of Victim Services, to create new programs. So it was a combination of a lot of feedback, um, bringing some outside perspectives into the university through those funders, through consulting with national organizations to, to identify what would be model practices and to build out a plan 
um, around those. What is the environmental scan process and findings? What is that? And, and, you know, what did you find? So we did campus listening sessions. We had an online portal form. We've had two independent law firms do comprehensive reviews of MSU's Title IX policies and victim service programs. We have, we did a comprehensive campus climate survey where over 15,000 students, faculty, and staff participated in that process. We did campus engagement sessions and discussion sessions after that. Nearly 500 people attended those to talk about the survey findings. And President Stanley met directly with survivors and their families and their allies to hear directly from them about their experiences and their concerns. And what we heard across all of those different sources was a very consistent message that we need culture change here at MSU, that um, our leaders need to lead with integrity, that our campus community needs to come together to support survivors and to focus on preventing this from happening in the first place, a real strong emphasis on strengthening our prevention programming, and that we need to make it easier for survivors to seek help And that as we do this, we really need to think about the fact that violence does not affect each and every community equally. Our data show pretty clearly that we have higher rates among members of the LGBTQIA plus communities, that people with disabilities experience violence at higher rates, and that racial and ethnic minorities, particularly women of color, report higher rates of sexual harassment and workplace incivility. So as we think about this, we need to take what's called an intersectional approach. It's an idea that came from distinguished law professor uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, that you need to be thinking about how violence and victimization affects people with different identities and different intersecting identities, and that the programming really needs to be attuned to those factors. So that's the environmental scan gave us a lot of data and a pretty big challenge in front of us in terms of that we needed to do two things. We need to increase help seeking and make it easier for people to seek help And we need to decrease incidents. We need to decrease the number of people who are experiencing RVSM. I think talking to survivors too, it became more clear about the need for supportive systems for them to report. You know, as Becky said, we really had to look at um, our, our culture amongst our leadership and focus on educating people just about, you know, the inferred power dynamics they're there, they exist. People don't realize, some do, some don't, how much those come into play in situations of harassment or incivility, which our No More survey really gave us a lot of information about how often that's really happening. Um, and so working with our leaders, empowering them, giving them tools to recognize these things for early intervention to help them understand what the process looks like for a claimant going through it and how, you know, important those measures are to provide support, to provide, you know, the opportunity for them within their workplace to be able to talk to somebody and get support for that. And and also to be self-reflective about how they are using their own power dynamics in the workplace. Uh, It's, you know, one of those things where, it's there all the time. And until you really hear somebody talk about it, you just don't know what's happening. Could you, one of you or both define what we mean when we say relationship violence and sexual misconduct? Maybe it's obvious, but how would you define it? Relationship violence is 
when you're looking at um, people's intimate relationships, and again, that's power dynamics come into play a lot here too. And there's a lot of manipulation. There's, um, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, a lot of different factors that go into a, a relationship that can cause it to be very unhealthy, very unbalanced. And a lot of these, you know, power plays are really used to isolate victims to um, really prevent ways for a victim to report. And so it's important to help people understand the signs of that so that they can assist somebody in getting help seeking. It's really important for us to look at, and I mean us as a community, our own like biases about what we think or our predetermined thoughts about what we think someone should do in that situation. We automatically think someone should ask for help, but that's not always a safe opportunity for a victim to do that. When we look at sexual misconduct, there can be a whole range from, you know, sexual harassment um, and, and variations of that also to sexual assault. And there can be, like I said, a whole range of things that could fall into that um, category. Andrea, if you could define trauma-informed, which you've pioneered. Being trauma-informed is really understanding what neurobiology of trauma looks like. It's understanding that your body reacts in ways during trauma that somebody else may not recognize if they don't understand what that means. It's working with somebody who is in trauma and being able to support them through it because they may not know why their body, why their mind is reacting a certain way and being able to guide them through that process by um, providing supportive measures along the way too. You know, working with a survivor of sexual assault while they're in that trauma, what they're telling you about what happened may not make sense because their mind really in the midst of that trauma isn't processing it sequentially or um, their, their memories are very fragmented. And so they're not able to say, this is how it started and this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. That's not really how most people's minds work during trauma. So guiding them through that process and saying, I, I understand that you won't be able to tell me what happened, you know, in a, from the beginning to the end manner, and that's okay. Tell me what you remember, and we can start from there. So, you know, we've all in the past just made assumptions about when someone comes forward to report something, and it doesn't sound like an accurate story. And instead of, because maybe we didn't know what trauma can do to people, we just assumed they were lying. So understanding how trauma affects somebody helps us do a better investigation, helps us support a survivor better. And regardless of what process someone chooses, the outcome is better because we've supported them along the way. I would say one of the things we've been focusing on in the strategic plan is to look at the, all of the different stakeholder groups on campus, survivors, the helpers, the leaders, campus community, or service providers to ask what training have they received? Do they have training that's consistent with empirical research? Do they understand the impact of trauma? And are we preparing them to receive disclosures and to know how trauma affects people and to be able to respond in an empathic way and to connect people to support services? So a lot of the initiatives in our strategic plan focus on training of the campus community in small groups and large groups with our leadership 
of coming back to those basics of what trauma is, how trauma affects people and what their role is in being part of a trauma-informed community. Do you want to comment on the plan principles? What are they and why are they important? So we followed a values-driven principles-focused approach to developing this plan. And some key principles that we focused on was that our work needs to be intersectional, that it needs to be attending to the fact that violence is experienced differently in different communities and that certain communities have higher rates and that depending on people's intersectional identities, they're going to need different resources, want different resources, and different resources are going to feel more or less supportive or safe for them. And so that it's not a one size fits all and that we really need to be having multiple options for people depending upon what is safe and supportive for them. We also wanted to focus on the fact that all of our actions need to be trauma informed, that we need to build on the work that Andrea has done in creating uh, trauma informed investigations to really think about how we do trauma informed services all throughout the university so that no matter where a survivor reaches out to whom they may disclose that that person has a fundamental understanding of trauma and can respond supportively and connect people to services. What about some of the aims and initiatives now then, some of the specifics of the plan? So what our data from the No More survey told us was is that the number of people experiencing RVSM was a much larger number than the people who were seeking help. And seeking help could include reporting to the police or Title IX, but it also means reaching out to victim service programs or employee assistance. Um, and, and we just weren't having very many people come forward to seek help. So our first strategic aim is, is that we need to increase help seeking. We need to make uh, clear, accessible paths for people to receive help and support. And our second aim is, is that we simply need to reduce the number of people experiencing this. So we need a real strong focus on prevention and to reduce the incidence of RVSM. So with those two clear strategic aims to increase help seeking and reduce incidents, reduce the number of people, we then outlined a number of initiatives that map onto what research tells us will increase help seeking and will decrease incidents. So in terms of increasing help seeking, research is very clear we need three critical things. Number one, we need trauma-informed services and clear, accessible ways to get to those services. Second, we need a trauma-informed culture. People need to feel safe to disclose, and the people in that community, particularly the leaders, need to know how to respond in a trauma-informed, empathic way. And third, we have to change the way we handle RVSM sanctions and discipline. People will not report and they will not seek help if they don't believe that the institution will take it seriously. So the Office of the Provost is initiating um, sweeping changes in how they approach sanctions and discipline process that is noted in the RVSM strategic plan, but the work for that is being done in the Office of the Provost. On the side of preventing RVSM from ever happening in the first place, again, research gives us three very clear directions. Number one, we need to look at what resources and education and intervention we're providing for those who have been found responsible. Because without education and intervention, research is pretty clear they may commit those acts again. So that is often referred to as secondary prevention. For those who've already done it, what do we do to educate and intervene to make sure they don't do it again? 
The second key thing that research tells us we need to do is focus on the primary prevention, so it ever happening in the first place. And there, what we really want to be focusing on is developing skills that all members of the community have the skills to recognize that this is a situation that could result in relationship violence, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, workplace incivility, and that they have the skills to intervene. This is often called bystander intervention, that they um, understand what those dynamics are, they recognize them, and that they have the skills and feel empowered to intervene, that they don't just sit back, that they don't just sit silently and go, oh, well, there goes so-and-so again being, you know, the way they are in a faculty meeting, and there they are again treating staff that way, to say, no, um, that's not okay, and that they have the skills and the, and, and the confidence to intervene to say, nope, that, that, that's not going to happen, you know, I'm concerned about your behavior, we need to redirect that, so we need to teach people those skills. And third, that we need to create respectful work environments. And we have a lot of sub-initiatives, a lot of specific projects that are really focusing on creating a respectful work environment. Because what that does is it sets what the behavioral expectations are. What are our norms? What do we expect all students, faculty, and staff to do in being a member of this community? There's an initiative that talks about an ongoing training for leadership called Creating and Sustaining a Respectful Work Environment. And it, it really focuses on what leaders can do in regards to early intervention when they see something intervening and, you know, um, addressing behavior right away and depending on the severity of it, you know, what needs to happen from there. Um, from creating a, an environment and not just creating it up front, but sustaining it. So there's ongoing work that needs to happen. Um, communication with, with folks in the unit to make sure that everyone understands that there's certain behavior that won't be tolerated. And following up if that behavior does occur, following up appropriately. So teaching leaders what the process looks like, um, what their part in it is. And, and again, giving them the tools to be able to run a unit and sustain it so that there's a, a culture that's the foundation is respect. One of the things I think that's important to highlight about that training series that Andrea just mentioned is it's been a great example of changing the way we work here at MSU, just in terms of putting together that training program. What we heard so often is, is MSU operates in silos. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. There's not enough cross-unit collaboration. That training has been a collaboration of so many different units, academic HR, Office of Employee Relations, Andrea's role in the Office of the President, colleagues with content expertise, um, and really bringing both the academic and the support side and the administration and the faculty content expertise together to develop um, this training program. How about a little bit just on timeline evaluation, how will you know if we're have, making some progress? So one of the things that was really important to us in this strategic plan was developing a robust evaluation of it, that putting out a bunch of initiatives doesn't really do much if you don't evaluate them and know whether they're working. So we already did one climate survey in 2019. And as part of that, we collected really rigorous baseline data in terms of the incidence of RVSM, how many people are experiencing it, um, what the help seeking was, where people are reporting to, and measures of climate 
How are they feeling about the leadership of the university, our culture around RVSM? That provides us baseline data that then we can return to in the spring of 2022, in the spring of 2024, to see if we're seeing demonstrable change. What we're hoping for is, is that the rates of, of help seeking, again, that can include reporting, but it doesn't necessarily mean formal reporting to Title IX or the police, but to seeking help. We expect those rates to go up. We're hoping for statistically significant improvements in those. We're also hoping to see that our primary prevention programs are working and that the overall incidence of relationship violence, sexual misconduct, workplace incivility are decreasing. And we're hoping to see changes in those climate measures that people feel that this is a serious issue of RBSM, that our leadership are invested and that we are making significant progress in transforming the culture of that. All of those data are publicly available through the Office of Civil Rights website and all future evaluation data will also be public. Accountability is important. Uh, transparency is important. So we need to be putting those data um, out for public engagement, which we have and will continue to do so. And if we find that those metrics are not changing, it's, about, it's, it's our responsibility to dig into that to understand why. You know, is there a problem in our programming? Where is it missing the mark? What do we need to be doing better? Um, how can we improve this? It's a living, breathing plan um, of continuous improvement and change over time. Why is this important to both of you to be doing this important work? You know, I'm often asked, you know, isn't this hard? Isn't this depressing? And certainly there's days when it is. But by and large, it's not. I, I love this job. I love this role because I get every single day, I get to meet people at MSU who are committed to this issue and want to be part of the solution. I meet people from literally all different parts of this university in all different roles um, that I remember at different events, meeting people um, from IPF, infrastructure planning and facilities, asking me about this work and wanting to know how they can help, that I meet um, deans who are committed to this work. I meet student activists and the number of people that we get to interact with here at MSU who are really committed to this work is, it's inspiring. I'm working with survivors of relationship violence, sexual misconduct, whether it's sexual assault, sexual harassment, being able to make a process for them better because they already went through a horrible traumatic event. And sometimes the processes themselves, if not done correctly, are just another traumatic event. And, you know, a lot of the research that Becky has done, and we look at systems and how to improve and, and being able to have a part in that to make a system better for somebody that's already gone through something horrible, to make systems that are supportive, that are not re-traumatizing. It's just so important, you know, going through the, the Nasser investigation, the criminal investigation, the university investigation, and just watching the layers of trauma over and over and over again. The failures that these survivors experienced on so many different levels, that's not okay. And it needs to be addressed and it needs to be, again, going back to that creating and sustaining, it can't just be let's fix it right now for compliance to say we did. It has to be ongoing. It has to be reevaluated. We have to learn as we go and keep improving systems so that people have a safe place 
to go to report. Again, it doesn't mean reporting to police or, or Title IX all of the time. It can. But having places in the university that people are comfortable talking about their experience so that they can get support. And again, there's so many different facets to that, that we have to be able to look at this comprehensively to make sure that we're covering all of these areas and, and building a really, a much improved system than what we've been working with. And for me, like Becky said, there are days that are just, you know, you, you feel like you're just spinning your wheels and then there's a breakthrough. This is my calling. This is why I'm doing the work I'm doing because people deserve better. It's got to be rewarding to have support right from President Stanley from the very top. It is. Um, President Stanley's commitment to this has been very clear from day one. Back in the days when we actually got to work in our offices at MSU, our offices are literally next door to him. You know, we've had the opportunity to have those kind of hallway chats with him. Um, He asks how we're doing. He sees us you know, heading out to different campus meetings. We see him later on. He's like, how did it go? When he came to MSU, he, in addition to the required training that all students, faculty, and staff participate in, he asked for additional training on trauma, the impact of trauma. And I have to say, you know, I've trained a lot of folks in the neurobiology of trauma, and it was refreshing training a physician because um, there's usually a segment of the training where we have to go through basic neurobiology. So I would say something like in the limbic system, and he just nods and like, right, you're a physician, you know what that is, we can just skip that section and move to the next part. So he was genuinely very, you know, curious and wanting to know the current research on this and to, and to add that into his own knowledge as a physician. He sincerely cares about the community and really wants to improve culture in, in many different areas. Um, but he has been very committed to the RVSM initiatives and very supportive of um, Becky and I and and the work that we do. What are a couple of key takeaways you'd each like people to take from the plan? For a community, no, no matter what your role is, when you know better, you're able to do better, but you have to make the choice to do so. So as this plan is rolling out, be engaged, pay attention, make a choice to do better because here's a lot of information that helps you know better. We can change the culture at MSU. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. For it to be real, it has to be meaningful. It has to take time. And it has to take all parts of the university. It has to take our leaders. It has to take our faculty, our deans, our staff, our students. It has to take everybody. The plan outlines many concrete behavioral things that we can and must do to decrease the prevalence of relationship violence and sexual misconduct and to make it easier for survivors to seek help and support. Yeah, and I encourage people to read it. Um, yeah. it, it, it presents the underlying philosophy, the values and the principles that inform this work. It describes the process of how we did this, all of the different data sources. And it lays out all of the different initiatives. We have tables upon tables that outline which unit is responsible for this. What's the timeline for this? Where's the funding for this? What are we expecting to to include? I am a professor of psychology. I also am a professor of program evaluation. I got to bring all of those skills to bear here and to outline in a very tactical way, initiative by initiative, what 
what is going to happen, on what timeline, and who is responsible. Read the plan in the Mission and Initiative section of President Stanley's website at president.msu.edu. And keep up with ongoing efforts of the plan on Twitter at NoMoreMSU, K-N-O-W-M-O-R-E-M-S-U, at NoMoreMSU. I'm Russ White for MSU Today. (music) 